0: Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will interview Haley Henning, an executive at Greenland Ruby, and Eric Jens, an expert on industry financing. Welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK and JCK Online.
1: And this is Rob Bates, news director of JCK and... GCK Online.
0: We're super excited. We've got for the first time here in our podcast studio, a, a duo. And in fact, they're a married couple. It's our first duo and our first married couple. Haley Henning, VP of sales and marketing at Greenland Ruby and a veteran of the colored stone trade. And her husband, Eric Jens, a strategic partner for companies in the luxury industry, including jewelry and art companies, and also a longtime expert in diamond financing.
2: So we're thrilled to have you. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. And uh, thanks for having us in the studio. This has been a long time coming. I know we've set up a couple of dates. Finally, we made it in. Yeah, it's very yeah. good. Um, so thank you very, very much for having us. It's really thrilling to be here with you. And of course, working with JCK is always so much fun as far as you know, our industry is concerned. You guys being the authority, it's uh, really fun of you to have us in. And we're absolutely honored to be part of your team today. As you can may or may not be able to tell from the accent, I'm originally from South Africa. I was born there and lived most of my life actually in in, in Johannesburg in the southern part of Africa. But I've lived in New York for 20 years. So actually this is my 20th year. So I do consider myself a New Yorker and funny with the accent because I consider myself still to have a very South African accent. But when I go back to South Africa, people are like, "Haley, you know, now you, you're you home, you can drop your American accent. So <laughs> it's really funny. And then, of course, when I'm here, you know, people are like, where are you from? Where are you from? And I say, no, I'm I'm in New York. And they're like, Mm-mm, no, no, that's not true. We, we know that that's not true. You don't sound like it at all. So, yeah, you can't win either way. But, um, yeah, anyway, I am South African. Thrilled to be living in New York and consider myself a true New Yorker.
3: Well, my accent has this Dutch roots, and that's where we have this common thing, South African and the Dutch, many years ago. We always say that we're kind of a global citizen. We live where we are, but our roots are here in New York.
0: You two are hard to pin down. You're in Bangkok one day, in Jaipur the next, Greenland. I mean, it's. It, we'll get to that, but that's a pretty remarkable Travel CV, you have the two of you together,
2: especially. It so. is. We have, we do have status with the airline, I must say. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, whether that's a good or a bad thing, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. And like Eric says, uh, we consider ourselves global citizens, really. Do you mostly travel together? You know, yes and no. I mean, we are newlyweds, as you know. So that's so how many, how many years? Going on three. We really are lucky enough to be able to do a lot of our traveling together.
0: I remember intersecting with you two in Jaipur in october twenty seventeen when it was the ICA Congress. But it sounded like that may have been either your first of several trips to India that year. I mean, it was it was kind of crazy because Jaipur is a long way to go. From anywhere, really, but um, from New York, especially.
2: Yeah, it was. And actually, that was a great trip. I remember it clearly. And and we were so lucky, actually, because we, as you say, we got to share that together. And then, of course, we took a couple of days and went to the Taj Mahal. I mean, isn't that the, you know, absolutely one of the most gorgeous places? But, you know, let me not make it all sound so fabulous and glamorous. You know, it is work-related. And as you know, it can be very tiring. But, um, yeah, we are lucky enough to be able to sometimes share that time together and at least be not sort of pining for home when we're on these work trips so it does make it all that more bearable living the dream for real
1: how'd you guys meet i assume in the industry
2: well we did uh, eric's allowing me to do all the talking no, i don't we, know we, maybe we, i should you let would you answer answer do some question. of the talking yes. but yeah i'm very happy to um to to talk all about it um actually we did we we met in moscow interestingly enough, at the SIBJO Congress. So Eric's on the board of SIBJO, and I was invited to, uh, to the Congress in Moscow. What I was doing in those years was also very much related to corporate social responsibility, and this was the focus of the Congress that year. So I was absolutely... Dead set on 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 going to Moscow that year, I was not going to miss this conference for anything. And little did I know um, that I would meet the love of my life while I was there. Of course, when we met, we struck a f- conversation and and never stopped talking. That was the the trip that that I think changed both of our lives so eric when was that that was Cib Joe 2016 it was
3: 2014 actually 20. Oh, okay. 2014. 2014 and and in the beginning it was just chatting like business friends industry friends, friend, industry you know, friends right. and talking about opportunities talking about okay challenges and uh, you were with the tanzanite foundation at that time i had my challenges on the banking side and we started chatting and, and and coaching each other a little bit on 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 different topics and and from the coaching other time, types of coaching occurred. So that's uh, that's that was the end of
1: that, yes. You know, my wife is also in the industry. Yeah. We don't talk a lot about work. I mean, people probably think that we do, but we rarely do. I mean, we have a child, so that's what we talk about. Do you guys talk a lot about work?
2: We talk a lot about work. I wish we talked less about work, honestly, but, you know, what I'm doing at the moment, which I know we're going to discuss in more detail a little later but it's really um you know in in effect this is the early stages of this this company so there's a lot to talk about and you know I really consider Eric to be a great source of information great inspiration and great knowledge and experience so i do we do talk a, a lot about work
3: we, we like to find a balance which is not always easy to do that especially if if, if you go to bed and and, and you wake up and, and you start thinking about uh, checking your emails in the morning after the coffee and think oh did you see what happened and and we, we're both in in, in the startup phase of different companies so so there's always something happening and but for me work is not work and and yeah, i mean work is work very, is our life and, and and our life is work and and we, yeah. we have a lot of fun of what we're doing so it's not that we wake up in the morning of course we have to go to the office i mean it's also the way we we, we are able to run our business and and our life so yeah that's that's it's it's really a structural part of life but we don't see this this life work thing it's it's life so uh, not not typical work
0: yeah well and being able to travel the world together of course when you're in Fabulous, glamorous cities together. Attending conferences, it does sort of. It's hard to separate what is fun and what is business because they're both kind of intertwined. Exactly, yeah,
3: absolutely. <laughs> but at a certain moment, I must must admit that we also become a little bit tired of of another uh, conference, of another. I mean, at the end, are, are we are these conferences really making the difference? Uh, we always talk about sustainability. We always talk about how things should be better. We talk about finance. We talk about providence. But what is really changing? Do these conferences really add value? Otherwise, there's there's a lot of contacting and networking and things like that, which is extremely important. That's the reason why we go. Yeah,
1: certainly. In your case, it was important. Yeah, there you go.
3: No, 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 exactly. But but in, in a way that 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 are, are these conferences really making the difference? So that that is that is still for debate, I think, at a certain moment. And I think that's certainly something JCK is looking at as well. How can we do things better? And, how can we really achieve things? And especially, we had one of the, the nicest trips we have we had was was going to Bogota for for Shibjo Was that in November? That? November a year ago. Colombia is, is is a great country, and and we love Bogota. But I really made made a claim there also at the end of of different panels we had by saying, hey, everybody had, had had a lot of fun and a lot of talks and a lot of commissions and committees and everything else. But but let's 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 add up the end result of what we have achieved, what we have agreed upon, and was it worthwhile? And what are we going to do different tomorrow, whatsoever. And I think Hades said at the time as well, well again, discusses about sustainability. If you d- still don't understand what sustainability is, CSR and ESG, that what it does for your company and for the world and, and for, for for basically hey, the community, if you still have to discuss that, then then something is wrong. Let's talk about indeed the consumer and, and how to keep the consumer attracted to, to this industry and 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 i think we're not doing a, as an industry in general not not a good not a good job on that so so that's well, that's I think that's we're doing a very
2: yeah. d- a good job internally with each other we're talking a lot to each other um but yeah to your point reaching the consumer i think is is something that that everybody's trying to achieve
1: when i first started i remember the conferences being very interesting and very vibrant and there was a lot of talk and now i agree with you it's it's a little it's a lot of the same people over and over again I went to one a long time ago. I won't say what the group was, but it was like a three-day conference. And at the second day, there was two groups, and one of the groups said, well, we don't have anything more to talk about. So it was like, okay, well, why are you wasting my time? And then half the time, because I was pressed, they would kick me out of the session. So I'm thinking, why am I going here anyway? But it it seemed like there is less and less being achieved. Like I remember the conference where they – you know, okay, the Kimberley process. That was a huge deal. That was a big mm-hmm. thing. But but I think as the power gets centralized in fewer and fewer players, and those players aren't necessarily the people who show up to these things, you're, you're seeing less and less actual... Uh, news and, and and things happening in yeah. these countries. And, and how many industry bodies do we need? I mean if you add it all up, I mean it's it's amazing.
3: And and I've been talking a lot with SIPJO and RJC. I said, well can can we really bring those SIPJO movements and, and RJC movements together. I'm not talking about merging them, but I think a cooperation and, and fortune that's happening now with, with RJC and SIPJO, which I think two very important organizations. Mm. And I also said well can we can we just map all the industry developments uh, and, and initiatives related to CSR and, and ESG Et etc uh, can we can we map those initiatives against the 17 sustainable development goals of, of the United Nations and if you do that and publish that then I think I think the industry is is probably the most self-regulated industry in the world eh, compared to any other industry but but we we are convincing ourselves that that we do a good job but again eh, what do we do vis-a-vis the consumer and and can we make that happen
0: yeah I don't know I don't know what the if it's going to take a crisis to actually kick us to the next level,
3: but I'm, I'm absolutely positive. Huh? I mean, I mean, there's 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 huge opportunities. But if we cooperate better as an industry and and think indeed of the consumer and the next next generation consumer, I think we do do, do a better
1: role.
0: Well, you two do a, kind of a an interesting job because you come from very different places in this industry, and so it does seem like as a couple, you you have these complementary sets of expertise. So Haley, and maybe this is a good point to So just ask you and talk to you about what you're doing, and then we can talk to Eric about his expertise, because you do seem to kind of probably play off each other, and lessons learned from your various categories probably inform the others. But you're with Greenland Ruby. For a long time, you were with Tanzanite Foundation, so you've come from this long experience in the colored stone world. So tell us about... How you joined Greenland Ruby? What? How you got there? And also a little bit about how it's changed because I remember reporting on them before you arrived and they had been owned by a Canadian company, or it wasn't. It was True North Gems, I guess, mining the d- same deposit.
2: Exactly, and you're correct. I am from the uh, coloured stone background. I had many years with the Night Foundation, and now, yes, with Greenland Ruby. So I love coloured stones, and not that I don't love the diamond industry, I do. I just find colour just so much so exciting and and so interesting. And this idea of of a, of a gemstone being from such an original location is is absolutely fascinating to me. So over the years, I've you know started to really talk about how gemstones, colour gemstones, find their way from from their mining operation into the hands of the jewelry buying elite, whether it's through designers or manufacturers or retailers, but really helping people to understand where colored gemstones come from and what makes them so very unique. So that's a little bit my background. And yes, I'm with Greenland Ruby and it's a fantastic opportunity actually. And I've so enjoyed the last couple of years with this company because it's not every day, first of all, that one discovers a colored gemstone deposit, let alone that it would be a ruby deposit. And especially in such an unbelievably unusual locations such as Greenland, which we can talk about a little bit about later. But um, yes, this is what I've been involved in for the last couple of years and, and how interesting it's been, actually identifying exactly what the gems are, what we need to do to bring the material, the gemstones themselves into the marketplace and how difficult that really is, you know, the the steps that are taken to to bring a a gemstone to market. And yes, like you say, Eric and I do complement each other from the diamond and colored gemstone point of view, because I do believe that actually colored gemstones are a diamond's best friend. So we really do wish that there was more cooperation between the industries, because We're quite separate, and you'll probably agree with that, even though one industry, you know, the diamond people do things one way and the colored stone people do things another way, when in actual fact we're seeing so much more color in the market today and and collaboration between diamond jewelry manufacturers and colored Stone people really is what I'm trying to encourage. And actually, I've seen a fair amount of success with a number of diamond jewelry manufacturers who have never done anything with colored stones yet and are starting to really see the opportunity with color. And I know we see that in general in our industry is that color really does offer great opportunity. You know, the margins are great, the storylines are great and in general, I think, make really fantastic pieces of jewelry and, you know, very, very interesting storylines. So that's, um, I think, a little bit of, of how I find our industries coming together and, um, you know, the, uh, so, uh, some of what we we spend a lot of time talking about.
3: Yeah, uh, that's right. And, and we always talked about it because in the end... In a piece of jewelry the diamonds and and the colestar stone and the gold platinum whatever comes together but if you see in real life, these are all silos still. And and that is something sure. we have to do some reverse thinking and say, okay, let's start with the, with that consumer again, start with a piece of jubilee and, and calculate things back. At the same time we have to realize that the collar stone business is a very fragmented market and, and many, many millions and millions of different players from artisanal to to, to huge, uh, the, the larger companies and more than industrial companies. While the diamond industry is more and more dominated by a handful basically of, of, of large companies and and of course people won't like don't like that i'm saying that commodities uh, that the diamond is actually at a certain moment not a commodity but should be it's getting more and more commoditized let me put it like that from a finance perspective from from a provenance perspective etc and the Collarstone business absolutely not and i think that's also where both industries both worlds could could learn from each other what what to do better and and actually it's very amazing that that rjc for instance only came up What was in november october last year with with the Collarstone um guidelines and principles and and i hope that green and ruby is going to be the first uh, certified member uh, from rjc from that point of view well
2: we are the first colored stone mining operation member and as you know with rjc we have now two years to complete our certification which is a series of um, results that we have to present in order to actually become a certified member but we are officially a member of rjc which is a fantastic start and to Set the way or pave the way, I should say, for for other colored gemstone companies to follow suit or to get involved because we do know that as difficult as it is, these are some of the things that we all need to start um, looking at doing and I know there's been you know a great amount of resistance in the colored stone industry I know it's very very difficult to to track and trace but you know this is a, a, a part of what's going on in our industry and as difficult as it seems we all have to start somewhere so Greenland Ruby is hoping to set that example.
3: Yeah, it's the same as the Kimberley process it's 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 called a process it started in 2003 and, and it's still not finished and, and I think and I think people can can or complain about the kp etc but at the same time it's the only thing we have and if without a kp i mean a kimberly process i don't think we should we would have been where we are right now but of course there should be further innovation on, on the kimberly process and i think technology like blockchain can help a lot for efforts we talked about it in the past rob yes
1: you want to tell us a little so how many times have you been to greenland
2: quite a couple actually you know this is this big landmass um in the very northern hemisphere positioned somewhere between north america and and europe and yeah it's an absolutely fascinating Country in itself. If you don't already know, Greenland is an independent, autonomous state. Uh, originally, I, I belonging... heard it's for sale, though. Well... <laughs> <laughs> no? Oh, Rob! I knew you would have to come up with, with that somewhere along the line. Uh, yeah, that was a rumor a couple of months ago. So, as funny as it sounds, and I loved the article that you did on that. So, so thank you for jumping in. I mean, it's be, it was so funny to me because actually, you know, here I am for the last couple of years talking about Greenland and you know, we're Greenland is and what it does and who are the people and the population and the size of the country. And nobody really knew much about Greenland at all. And then, you know, as to your point, until a couple of months ago, where all of a sudden Greenland was on the tips of everybody's tongue and it was the headline in all of our news stories, you know, with this crazy notion that... President Trump would, uh, was putting in a bid or was interested to buy Greenland. I mean, it just seemed like such a crazy, crazy notion. It was an Onion headline, I think. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, I'm like, <laughs> See, hey, I, you, know, like you know, I thought I was dreaming. I thought, how is this possible? He I I mean, thought
1: it was Disneyland, maybe.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, of course, wouldn't that have been the ultimate in real estate deals? But, I mean, of course, this is, um, you know, seemed like such a crazy notion. But in, in actual fact... Um, Greenland does uh, sit on one of the biggest and richest mineral deposits in the world. And, you know, most of this has been buried under ice and snow for for millions and millions, if not billions of years. You know, this is a pretty much untapped resource. So there is a lot going on in Greenland. I I would even go so far as to call it a new frontier. And Greenland Ruby is one of the first companies that actually has the license to uh, commercially mine, Uh, Well, of course, gemstones. Yes, it's the only gemstone mine in, in Greenland. But there is a lot of mining exploration licenses at the moment granted in Greenland. So there's a lot going on there in terms of, you know, rare earth minerals, nickel, lots and lots of mineral content. But the ruby deposit is one of the only licenses.
0: If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now, back to the show.
1: We've heard, on a more serious note about Greenland, is that global warming and climate change has had a real impact.
2: Well, you know, I am not um, in any position to make any political statements regarding uh, climate change or or global warming, but it does certainly appear as if there is impact in the Arctic regions specifically because, you know, there is so much extreme temperature in this part of the world, so... Has things. the mine
0: had to make sort of provisions, or, or you, you know, know,
2: not, not, not really, actually? And if you if you were to be speaking to our mine manager, he would say, "Well, I, we've not had any impact at the mine in terms of of global warming or ice caps melting or anything like that." However, you know, pe- people in Greenland will say, will tell you that you know it's very obvious that glaciers are are melting and change is most certainly taking place.
0: You're wearing a remarkable ring, and I just want it. It looks like I don't know how many carrots. I'm going to guess it's eight. I don't know. How many carrots is it?
2: This is actually, um, a, if I remember correctly, about 13 and a half carrots. Okay. Thank you. And as you probably can imagine, it is a ruby from Greenland. That's so as beautiful. you can see, thank you very much. The color is absolutely I, I absolutely stunning.
1: Very nice. Um,
2: and actually, the, the Greenlandic material has been compared color wise to other ruby material from different parts of the world, be it from Burma or from Mozambique, it is a hard rock deposit. So the nature of the material is slightly different. It is corundum, as all ruby is. But because it's a hard rock deposit, the material has been, and and in actual fact, it's believed to be the oldest gem material on earth. Geologists have estimated about 3 billion years old, which is not, not just millions, but billions of years older than any other gemstone deposit on earth. So, you know, we, and actually the material with it being a hard rock deposit, has been trapped within the rock for all these billions and billions of years. It does mean that the material is included. And for that reason, we use treatment as part of our processing. But this is also what allows us to responsibly bring this material to the marketplace. So it's all part of the processing. And without that kind of treatment, there would be no way that we would actually make the material marketable. So it's part of the storyline and it's part of the processing. But um, yeah, the color is exquisite and we're we're very excited. People have been really very, very excited to see the material.
0: And it comes in, is that size very unusual?
2: You know the size is somewhat unusual, and and people expect that our sizes are smaller, but actually because we are able to to do the treatment, we can produce fairly large sizes. And actually I have gems in my safe up to 50 carats. In fact, our smaller calibrated sizes are actually more rare and harder to come by because the material breaks apart in those smaller sizes. It's hard to get very, very clean, eye-clean material in the smaller sizes. It's better to treat and then make bigger material. And for that reason, we're producing a lot of Beautiful cabochons. And there's not a lot of ruby cabochons in the market. So, this is our opportunity for really making a difference. And I saw actually your article the other day on cabochons on the red carpet. So, I am doing everything I can to make cabochons the most desirable. And and as we all know in the jewelry industry, you know, one gets a lot more cabochon for your money than than with a faceted stone, and I would much rather have a gorgeous, you know, big round juicy cabochon than a than a mediocre small faceted stone. And that might just be me, but I do You're believe, not alone. You're not alone yeah, I do believe really. that there's great opportunity with that. So, you know, from our point of view, that's where our opportunity lies. Also. While we have the rubies, we also have a lot of beautiful pink. and Pink is, of course, the hot uh, color at the moment. Everybody's looking at pink, pink, pink. We have a lot of gorgeous pink material as well. So, you know, from the deep, dark, what is called uh, pigeon blood in our industry, to the lighter shades – of what I'm calling icy pink and everything in between, we have developed our own color scale. So we have about six or seven different ranges in in color from the red through to the icy pinks.
1: And Tucson is coming up.
2: Yeah, Tucson. Do uh, you guys
1: have anything planned?
2: Well, we are. We're working on it and we will for sure be there and uh, very much looking forward to Tucson where we can really talk about Greenland Ruby. A lot of people are interested to see what we've got to offer, what we've been doing in the last couple of years. I will be hosting the Pink Polar Bear Piñata Party in Tucson. So you guys, please Sounds make fun. sure that you're there. It will be fun. We'll be updating the Where press. and when,
0: I'll, I'll be there. Yeah, I like, we'll I like be a good piñata party.
1: So, what, what is a Polar Bear Piñata Party?
2: Well, the Pink Polar Bear is the Greenland Ruby Corporate Social Responsibility arm. We formed the Pink Polar Bear Foundation As the CSR arm for Greenland Ruby, everything that we produce at the mine and we sell, a percentage of those proceeds will be channeled into the Pink Polar Bear Foundation. It's not to do with saving the polar bears. It's called the Pink Polar Bear Foundation because the polar bear is the symbol of of Greenland. But it really is concerned with international polar research in all disciplines, not only animal, but in human species that are affected by climate change. So we'll be challenging funds into the foundation, which in the long run, we're hoping to, you know, really raise a a substantial amount of money that will ultimately go towards significant and sustainable research in Arctic regions, specifically in Greenland.
3: Well, they didn't, can make a nice bridge because actually I'm the chairman of the Pink Polar Bear Foundation. <laughs> there you go. So, there we go.
2: Guess yes. how he was appointed there. <coughs> there you had him in. Well, and actually, let me just say that that the reason for that is that this is a very, very serious foundation. This is not just something that we just thought. Oh, let's have you know a foundation. You know, part of corporate social responsibility is really to do something meaningful and sustainable. And it's not, you know, just because it's the right thing to do. It needs to be set up properly. It needs to have the proper foundation. We have a board of directors. And for that reason, we put Eric in charge of that.
1: Let me talk a little bit about your background. You, you didn't have a diamond background, right? You had a, a banking background, and then you took over diamond division at ABN Amro, which is I, it's still probably the biggest lender in the industry. Uh, no, still? Not or no, not no, anymore. Not no. anymore.
3: I think. I think uh, we talk about now.
1: Indosion Bank is probably the the larger, the largest of the, of the group right. in this, in the meantime. So when you came there. Did anything about diamond lending in particular strike you as different from other oh, kind of lending? Absolutely, I've been my life in banking and and
3: and especially on, on on the client side, always client focused on on private wealth management, asset management, uh, private banking and, and lending and finance. It was always my my passion, and and I did that since I was twenty, and then. Uh, since the financial crisis, there were a couple of issues in banking, and and apparently I was a good uh, problem solver um, and and cleaning up and transforming businesses, and I did it successfully for the hedge fund business for Fortis at the time, dealing with the whole Madoff uh, issue we had at, uh, in 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 2008.
0: And you were always based in Amsterdam, or were you uh, based no, in New York?
1: No, all over the world, actually all over the world. Um, but always for ABN?
3: Initially, May Pearson, and Maes Pearson became Fortis, and Fortis became, after the crisis, uh, ABN AMRO. So there was, I have a lot of different business cards, but in the end it was the same organization, but, but uh, in th- big transformation processes. So... At a certain moment, what I said, I restructured the hedge fund business and I restructured the private banking business in Switzerland for ABN AMRO. And then they said, "Hold on, we have a we have a diamond finance business, and we don't understand the strategy. We don't understand what's going on. We know every time we lose a lot of money. Uh, so Eric, can you have a look at it and see what we can do with it?" So I said, "Okay, well, let's let's have a look." Um, and what I found was 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 in a lending portfolio a loan portfolio where I think okay uh, compared to to earlier standards I was I was used to I thought hmm, we didn't see enough collateral we didn't see um, the skin in the game from the diamond tears themselves I mean the bank was was lending 100 percent of the invoices so I think there was a was a well no checks on 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 tracks and balances on the invoices itself so f- funds were rerouted or, or goods were returned and well you know what happened and uh, and I said, okay let's let's change so I had a great team, a great management team. I worked with uh, in in that in that period. We called it de-risking optimization, and and a big part of the de-risking was that I said, okay, I'm an old-fashioned banker. If you give sometimes money to a client, uh, tell them that you want it back and see what what if it's possible to pay back, and if not, then we have a problem. So I got quickly well wise, and in in this whole process, in a way, what what was possible, and what was not. So we had a very good. Process in a way and the de- de-risking process to to not only make the portfolio healthier but also uh, if 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 you want to do something for yourself for the portfolio of the bank you also have to do something from the industry. So I took a kind of a leadership, thought leadership role by by saying, okay, let's 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 give something back to the industry by helping the industry when when we talk about CSR again, but also when we talk about new standards, where we talk about bankability, finance uh, options, and and technology, new technology.
1: Last year, as you know, A.B. and Ambrose uh, sent out a letter saying they're not going to finance certain rough purchases. A lot of people were very alarmed by that. Do you think that was, you were gone by then, but do you think that was a reasonable thing for them to do? Well, over the years, we
3: we took a lot of initiatives in, in the same direction. I remember huh, we said at a certain moment, our advance rate is only 70% instead of 100%. I think what what uh, the letter, what they send out, but for me, it's of course difficult to, to, to say anything. But... I can fully understand that 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 approach absolutely. And and why would you finance profitable business? The thing is, I think you should do it on a one-on-one basis with your client. And and uh, but at the same at the same time, in the more legalistic world, you have to put it on a piece of paper. But I'm sure that the letter goes uh, is accompanied with with one-on-one conversations with the client. And I think I think it's a healthy healthy development.
1: When you think of all the issues that the industry is dealing with. What is? Do you think the big cause is it the lack of profitability in the midstream, or is it some of the, I would say, some of the scandals and the the not being able to be, you know, instances where people weren't paid back? I think there's
3: not a, a general lack of finance or issue with finance. I think the industry likes to say that because it, it, it deviates the focus on, on other things. I think the lack of profitability is an issue. And that comes from, from, from different, for different reasons, basically. Hey, you talk about the lack of profitability because people were not updating their, their, uh, the way they produced the diamonds, uh, enhancing yield, uh, applying new technology. And as long as the margins were nice, I mean, nobody really cared. And, and and now you are in a situation that the margins are very thin. Uh, so so these kind of optimization and cost reductions are, are key. I think that hasn't been done in in general. So like you see in any other industry, yeah, I mean, always compared with Royal Dutch Shell, if, if the oil price is 100 bucks per barrel and, and it drops to to 25. They don't blame uh, the, the OPEC cartel or whatsoever by saying, help, we, we cannot make our money. No, it's just a strategy. And I don't think that the diamond industry has done it enough. In general, I would say. The second is, is that, that uh, of course, you can also ask whether the price of a rough diamond is, is, is not too high. I don't know, but apparently there is this this imbalance in in demand and supply, and and you saw the, the figures of Tobias and Arrosa. Well, if you
1: see that, then then you know there's something wrong. Some people blame Indian banks for some of the issues that that have kind of arisen. That a lot of that some of the big companies were kind of being sustained on these on, on easy credit, and in no, fact but, that yeah. became part of their business model, just getting bank money. My theory from that
3: perspective is that, that there was a big blur when there was no distinction between uh, what was put in the real estate market, for instance, and and what was put in, in the underlying diamond business in India. There was a lot of money put into the, the real estate business, and when the market was growing, uh, the valuations every year up 15 20 25%, everything was great. But after demonetization, the whole real estate market came down, of course, and, and the liquidity was gone. So basically, the companies were hit both, and again, this is in general, both on, on the real estate assets, but also on the margin influx uh, of, of, of the diamond business. So that was a perfect storm. And at the same time, banks pulling out uh, the, 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 their credit, I mean, yeah, there you know that, that as a company, you get into into trouble. And and I, I do think the, the, the big scandals we've seen uh, in, in in India, we know we we talk about the two big big names there, but actually, that nothing to do with the diamond industry. Eh? It, it was that was basically a fraud in banks, in those companies, in the jewelry business. But everybody thinks it's the diamond business. But I think I see that separate. But yeah, there have been a couple of of
1: broke traders
3: and, and and companies which which got into trouble.
1: You know, you helped out a little bit with the Bain report that just yeah. came out. Yeah. It said that things are probably not going to be better for the next year or so in the diamond business is that how you see things also well i'm not not sure i i,
3: I agree with everything in the report but i always like to read the reports i think i think they're, they're very well uh, balanced and and i like the, the the quantitative approach they have so i think the, the the point is as long as demand doesn't pick up everybody will be in trouble yeah. So so and and of course we we have seen now competition coming in from from the lab grown diamonds, which is only three percent of of the overall diamond market now. But trying to make your calculations, which becomes ten percent of the market. And I'm not saying that that lab grown diamonds will substitute natural diamond, but there is there is this tension. And if your margins do not improve, and and yeah, I think and if if if, if if the, the infantry is build, building up uh, over the, over the, over the years, and if 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 the, the recycling of diamonds is coming back over the, I mean, then then we have a big big overflow of of diamonds. So that's the question: who's going to buy it?
1: When you see ways out of this crisis, you know the industry is putting a lot of money. And the beers in particular, and the DPA into marketing, which is which is great. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think that's one of the ways out? Yeah, I think I
3: think that's one of the ways out. I think the other way out is to 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 unite as an industry. Huh? And I see now, for instance, the the, the discrep- discrepancies between the lab grown diamond people and and the natural diamond people. Always say, well, hold on, guys, a diamond is a diamond, huh? and and make that clear to to to, to the public huh? that that yeah, you have lab grown diamonds and you have have, have um, natural diamonds. But a diamond is a diamond, and and the regulations are clear on that. But at the same time, if both sides keep on fighting uh, with each other uh, publicly, uh, and and you do that in a way uh, with with advertisements or or beautiful commerce whatsoever, you only confuse the consumer. And the consumer will say, especially the younger consumer, I don't want to buy it. I don't want to buy a diamond because I don't understand. I'm confused. What is this all, all? So So make sure that that you you create one front as a diamond industry work together hey, with on, on the end product and don't see it as as a commodity only or commoditize it now see see okay how, how can you attract this this new generation how can you attract also the, the the current richer generation to keep on buying this this stuff
1: so i mean you guys are both very involved in csr and you know we've talked about how it's there's a lot going on and i think there's a huge desire for the industry to improve What's your sense of what where we need to go? Obviously, we need to commit ourselves to it, but how do we kind of make it less splintered, and how do we get the message out to people that you know we care, and in it's an industry that cares, and in it's an industry that wants to improve?
2: I think very often people think well what what can I do or or what should I be doing with my company or in my current situation and actually just to quote what Eric always says is that this always starts with you you know whether you are a big multinational company or whether you're just one person on your own it really does start with the individual person and just doing things differently and just understanding what corporate social responsibility is, or being responsible in general. And um, for us at Greenland Ruby, it's somewhat, I don't want to say it's easy, and yes, we do it, you know, but but it is a little bit in our DNA. The company is Norwegian-owned, and of course, it's a, it's a new company. So we have established ourselves with this corporate social responsibility in mind. And I do understand with companies that have been running for a long time, it's more difficult to make changes. But to how, to, how does one make changes? I don't know. I think, uh, look at the the UN you know they established the 17 sustainable development goals they're very simple to understand I don't know all 17 off the top of my head but you know things like women's empowerment or eliminating hunger or poverty I mean these all sound like very very big statements but if you start small and if you start in your own backyard you know ask yourself every day you know what what am I doing to make a difference
3: and I think I think it also has to do with uh, we see a lot of New initiatives, uh, very successful companies, a lot online, but they're all focused on one thing: is is that these are companies with a purpose. I mean, they all say like like what you do, Haley, with 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 the pink polar bear. A part of your your sales revenues goes into the big pot of of, of the pink polar bear. I see a lot of companies because because that consumer who buys that 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 piece of 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 clothes or, or or whatever or the ruby in this case, I mean knows that he's he or she is doing something well and doing something good and and, and that it's not just a purchase as a purchase but a purchase with a purpose and I think I think that's that's a new new thing, and it's it's doing these things because you believe that 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 is the right thing to do and and. And hopefully also bring that forward to the next generation. But I think the next generation is already way further than 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 my old generation.
2: But I think just starting small, like I said, and understanding who's your supplier, how do they do business, what goes on in their factory, how do they, you know, do they have their safety and security regulations in place? Do they employ women? Do they and the women that they employ are they paid equally as they are? To men, do they pay a fair tax? I, you know, and some of these things are impossible to know. But I think opening your eyes to it, or. or, or. The opposite, I think, you know, turning a blind eye is not the answer. And our industry does lag a little bit behind. I mean, it's happening in 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 other industries long before us. I mean, see what's happening in our food, food and beverage. You know, I mean, they they leaps and bounds ahead of us. So, you know, we do have to understand that that our industry must.
3: Uh, you you want to keep the the, the the mystique, which you you want to get get rid of the mystery of, of what's happening. So it hasn't be the black box. So the mystique has to stay because that's the charming thing. Of jewelry and, and luxury goods, but and I think, for instance, what 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 the beers are doing with Tracer or, or Richline with 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 Trust Chain and uh, Lucara with Clara, and it's an amazing what 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 all these initiatives do, and and you have Louis Vuitton with with Aura, I mean. But, but my dream is also that at a certain moment we talk about provenance, that these these systems start talking with each other, that it become interoperable and and uh, and basically become part of the mainstream rather than, than the exception.
0: Thank you guys both so much for coming in. It's a busy week. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll see you over the weekend. You yep. will.
2: You'll see us on the weekend. Thank you so much for having us and finally that we were able to I make know. it in. Yes, I mean, it was happy. a lot of backwards we and forwards. We really forward. enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Much. Well, really thank you Lots of
3: success.
0: listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor and engineer is Levi Sharp. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.